are only some words of scripture breathed out by God, why plenary inspiration favors essentially literal Bible translation. By plenary inspiration, I mean the view that every word of scripture is God-breathed in the original language. Every word, not just parts of it or not just the ideas. Plenary, full inspiration, it's all of scripture. Why it favors essentially literal Bible translation. That's a technical term that's been used among Bible translators to refer to a specific type of translation theory. And so I want to start out by saying um, that translations fall on a spectrum. And I've put a spectrum up here on the slide to say they go from very literal to very paraphrastic. Over here in the very literal category, the philosophy is keep the Hebrew and Greek word order. You get this in an interlinear translation where you take a Greek word and you put an English word below it. You take the next Greek word and you put an English word below it. And so it's it's woodenly literal, literal. The problem is the English becomes very difficult to understand. And so... I'm going to tell you John 3.16, what it would sound like in in a very literal Greek word order translation. Thus for loved God the world. Try to get your kids to memorize that. (laughs) Thus for loved God the world, so that the Son, the only he gave, in order that all the believing ones in him not should perish, but should have life everlasting. <laughs> um, that's just interlinear. That's just one word to one word. So, so no English translation does that. Even if we think the very words are important, we don't keep the Hebrew and Greek word order because the words or, word order is more natural in English if we switch them a bit to make a natural English flow. So, the next step after that is to go to essentially literal, not very literal, but essentially essentially literal. It says, translate the words. The King James Version was in that essentially literal tradition. The New King James, the same, of uh, 1981. The English Standard Version is in the same tradition, and I am on, have been on the ESV Translation Committee since its origin. Peter Williams now is also on that ESV Translation Committee. We have 13 members on the committee. New American Standard was in that essentially literal tradition. This was published in 1971. Um, I put it a little bit to the left because it tended to favor a little bit more sticking to the Hebrew and Greek word order if it could, but it became more awkward to read and it's more difficult to read. um, So someone said, well, J.I. Packer said, the New American Standard is like going someplace on a bumpy road. You know you'll get to the destination, but the journey may not be very pleasant. (laughs) It's very accurate. But the question is, is it usable enough English? And the New American Standard, while it's trustworthy, has never, since it came out in 1971, it has never 
uh, topped 3% of the Bible market in the U.S. Um, Holman Christian Standard Bible, put out by Brahman Holman Southern Baptist Translation, is also in, basically in this essentially literal category. Over here on the right are very periphrastic translations, or what is called dynamic equivalence. The idea is translate the thoughts, but not necessarily every word. Get the main idea across at each sentence or proposition. And I'll give you some examples in a few minutes. <clears throat> the New Living Translation is in that very dynamic equivalent tradition, uh, contemporary English version, New Century version, and the message is even more over in that direction, very creative in its expression. I'm not saying these are not useful, but my son, who's a pastor in North Carolina, said, Dad, you know, if you're reading a passage and it's really hard to make sense of it, go ahead and read it in the New Living, and they, they explain it to you. <laughs> and for that, as you, if you read it as a commentary, it can be very useful, but it doesn't translate every word. Now, in between is the NIV of 1984, which for a while had 50% of the Bible market. It, was the most, it still is the most commonly used uh, English translation, although the ESV is coming close. Um, the Today's New International Version, 2005 TNIV, went farther over in the dynamic equivalence direction, especially on more than 3,000 gender words. Man, son, father, brother, and he. He, him, and his. Uh, it was widely criticized. The publishers withdrew it. And then they came out with the NIV 2011, which moved just one half a space to the left. <laughs> I'll tell you about that a little bit more in detail. So that's the, that's the layout that we have, and I have to admit I'm not unbiased on this. I uh, have been with the ESV for, um, since the beginning, and it's the version I favor, but I do it by conviction. Um, now, what is the history of the ESV? Just a parenthesis for a minute. King James Version 1611, it was a revision of earlier good translations in English, and they say that at the preface. It was revised in 1901 with the American Standard Version, and for the British friends here, it was revised in 1881 with what is called the Revised Version, or RV, and the very similar to that, the 1901 American Standard Version. That was revised in 1952 with the Revised Standard Version, which I used for 30 years as my own personal Bible. And when I wrote and published the Systematic Theology in 1994, that's the version that I used because I thought it was the most accurate version available. I had tried the New American Standard. I couldn't memorize in it very easily. I had tried the NIV. I couldn't teach theology from it because the details weren't always trustworthy. So I stuck with the Revised Standard Version, even though there were some verses that were um, defective. I just kind of corrected those as I went along. But... <laughs> But then um, Crossway Books got permission to use the Revised Standard Version as the basis for a new translation. And from 1998 to 2001, we worked on preparing that translation. And as it came out in 2001, it was, we modified 8% of the RSV, or 60,000 words. Um, but 92% is the Revised Standard Version, which was very widely used throughout the English-speaking world um, for many years. But the, the point of this is, 
The ESV is not a brand new translation. It's a direct descendant. It's a great-grandchild of the King James Version. And many of the verses still sound familiar to people who have used the King James Version. Point A, Scripture claims that all of the Bible in the original manuscripts is to be considered the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.20, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All of Scripture didn't come from man. But does all Scripture mean the individual words themselves? I think it does. Several texts of Scripture place emphasis exactly on the individual words themselves. Every word of God proves true. Every word. And the Hebrew phrase kol imroth from the it's the plural form of imra, which is the, word, the Hebrew word used to refer to spoken or written words. It's not just the ideas, but every word of God proves true. Similarly, uh, Psalm 12, 6. Excuse me. I should try Peter's method. No. <laughs> Now let's try again. There we go. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord, same Hebrew word, imra, or plural imrot. Words of the Lord are pure words. How pure? Well, they use the, the biblical number of perfection, purified seven times. Pure without impurity. Jesus said, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And here it's krema in Greek. Rhema is the word in Greek used for spoke, especially used for spoken or written words, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul teaches in words taught by the Spirit. Revelation, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. There is an emphasis on the reliability of the very words of Scripture. That's the point of these verses. Sometimes Jesus and the New Testament authors make arguments that depend on a single word. Look at this. In Matthew twenty-two forty-four, Jesus, in disputing with his Jewish opponents, quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 110, and he says, How can David call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, I think he's saying, God the Father said to God the Son, David is saying that, The Lord said to my Lord, How can David call him my Lord if he's his So, uh, if David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? And Jesus himself, who was that son, descended from David, but also the Lord eternal in heaven, knew the answer, but the opponents couldn't figure it out. They were stumped. The point is that Jesus bases this argument on one letter in the Hebrew text, because the Lord says to my Lord, Ladoni... That's the word my at the end of that Hebrew word. If, it, if that last letter, that last consonant, was a little bit longer, it would be ladono to his Lord, or ladonka if it's a little bit longer than that to your Lord. In other words, that letter has to be correct or the argument does not work. Jesus is relying on one letter, a tiny letter in the Hebrew text, to base an argument from Scripture. There are other examples not an iota, not a dot will pass from, not one tiny letter, not a part of a letter will pass away from the law. And Paul makes a diff- an argument based on, and to his offsprings, not say to his offsprings, but to his offspring who is Christ, singular, plural, difference. And he says he can base an argument on this. 
The importance of all the words of Scripture conclusion means that the translator should translate no less than the original. If the words of Scripture are from God, it's important to focus on accurately translating the meaning of each word. So translators should not only ask, have I rendered the main idea of this sentence correctly, but have I represented correctly the meaning that each word contributes to the sentence? And I have memories of times on the translation committee for the ESV where we'd be going through a verse and we'd have the proposed translation that we would change it to in the ESV and then someone would say, wait a minute, what about that word? We don't have any rendering for it in the text. And we'd have to go back and say, well, wait a minute, that does add some sense to the verse. We have to be sure that word, at least the force of that word, is rendered in the translation. Now sometimes, for the, Hebrew, the Greek conjunction de or something, it might be simply rendered by a comma or by a period in a new sentence, but the force of it somehow has to be represented. I'm not saying every word has to have an English word equivalent. Sometimes there's a Greek or Hebrew word that can be represented by three or four English words, and sometimes two or three Hebrew or Greek words are represented by one English word, and they're truthfully translated. The question is, is the meaning of every word brought, brought out? Now, we faced that early on in the ESV with the word behold. It was in the Revised Standard Version. It was quite a literal translation. It represents in Greek a word idu, which means pay attention, something surprising or something important is going to happen. And it represents a Hebrew word, hine, which has the same sense. Behold, pay attention, something important or surprising is going to happen. But we thought, behold, that sounds like archaic. That doesn't sound like modern English. You don't say, behold, the session is about to begin. So what should we do? We tried out different ideas. We tried out look, tried out see, listen. But the problem is those words don't fit every context. And sometimes they just sounded trivial. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. (laughs) Doesn't have the weight. We decided in the end we were going to keep, behold, and it's there. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, behold, behold. There are 1,100 beholds in the ESV, and I love them. Because we decided there's no other word in English that carries that sense. Something important or something surprising is about to happen. It has meaning, and many modern translations just leave it out completely. They just say there's no equivalent. Sometimes they do look, sometimes they do see, sometimes listen, but sometimes just leave it out. We didn't want to. We wanted to translate every word. And now, what happens is, every once in a while, I see on TV or I see in the store window, behold, <laughs> the 2015 Volvo or something. I mean, it, it's still around. And, and, and our argument was, it may not be a word people use very often, but it's in everybody's passive vocabulary. Even if it's not in their active vocabulary, they know what it means. So we translate the meaning of every word. That's one of the reasons I favor the ESV. Well, behold. Number two, that's the philosophy then behind, essentially, literal translations, the ESV. The King James Version was this way, New King James, Revised Standard Version, New American Standard, New Revised Standard Version, except for gender language. NET Bible, a lot of Dallas seminary members contributed to that, and the Holman Christian Standard, all essentially literal. Dynamic equivalent translations often fail to translate meaning that some words contribute to the sentence. Example, if you translate the main idea, you'll leave out details, and you sometimes don't understand the importance of what you're leaving out. So, for instance, I teach ethics at Phoenix Seminary. 
there is a dispute in ethics over just war, whether it's ever right to fight a just war to defend your nation against an aggressor. There's another dispute in ethics over capital punishment, whether it's right for governments to execute uh, capital punishment, at least uh, in the case of murder. For a long time, I have used Romans 13.4 as an argument saying, it seems to me that God gives governments the authority to execute capital punishment because that's the power of the sword. The civil authority does not bear the sword in vain. And the word sword, makaira, it's the sword. It's what Herod used to kill James, the brother of John, with the sword in Acts 12. And uh, it wasn't used to spank people with. It was, <laughs> it was used to put people to death. But I can't use the dynamic equivalent New Living to, trans- to say that the sword... And, and people who believe in pacifism argue back and say, no, it's a symbol, but they know the word sword is there. It's there in the Greek text. But the New Living Translation just leaves it out. If you do wrong, you shall be afraid, for you will be punished. Or the New Century Version, he has the power to punish. They leave out sword. Why? It seems to me that's a word that God gave us. We shouldn't leave it out. Was the word makaira, sword, breathed out by God? Why not translate it? They will say, well, we translated the idea of punishment. And my response is, which idea? There are multiple levels of idea. And one idea is, one level of idea is the sword which the government is authorized to bear. Why leave it out? Here's another one, 1 Kings 2.10. And this is in the New Living Translation preface. This is the verse they use to talk about the merits of the New Living Translation. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. New American Standard, King James, Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, all have slept with his fathers. New King James and Holman Christian Standard have rested with his fathers. And the Hebrew word, the Hebrew is not difficult. Shakav means to rest or to lie down, to rest or to sleep. David is David. Im is with. Avotau is his fathers. David rested or slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The New Living Translation says, when someone dies today, we don't say he slept with his fathers. We say he died. So let's not say he slept with his fathers. That's a strange way of speaking. Why not just say, he died? And so the New Living says, then David died. And he was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. Did they get the main idea right? Yeah, they got the main idea right. Did they miss anything? Is is there anything lost? Anything lost? Think about it for a minute. The idea of sleeping hints, hints at the possibility of waking up. Hints at the possibility of resurrection. Died loses that. And the idea of sleeping with his fathers also gives some sense of corporate identity and hints at fellowship with those who have died and gone before. The New Living Translation leaves that out. Now, when I raise this in class, sometimes students say, yeah, but slept with his fathers, that kind of hints at sexual activity. It would be really misunderstood. My response is, It said the time came near to David to die. And he slept with his fathers and he was buried. 
it's idiotic to think it means sexual activity. <laughs> you don't avoid language because of an idiotic translation that's, that somebody totally ignorant would make. In addition, shakav, the Hebrew word, has exactly that same possibility of misunderstanding because it's, it's used in Leviticus, in the laws, about if a man lies with a woman, such and such, or if a man lies with a man is with a woman, it's prohibited. So to lie with or sleep with was used as an idiom for sexual activity in Hebrew as well as in English, and they didn't, they didn't think that was worth avoiding this rich metaphor. So translate the meaning of the words. Another way of saying the difference is this. In periphrastic or dynamic equivalent translations, the philosophy is if we have a time capsule and we can do what we want to with this time capsule or time travel machine, let's go back into 1000 BC, get King David and bring him to New York City and set him in the middle of the city and say, now how would you say this today? In other words, we should say it in the way people would say it today. And we're saying in the ESV, in essentially literal translation, we're saying, no, that's not the right way to use your time travel machine. Use your time travel machine to travel back to where David was and listen to how they said it then, and then translate the Hebrew into English that people can understand. I don't want to know how people would make up a new sentence today. I want to know what they said at that time. That's essentially literal translation. Mark 6.2, many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And the words, word hands is, is clearly there. Diaton kero now too, by his hands. Care is hand in Greek. And so the Greek text says that the miracles are done by his hands. The NIV leaves out hands. He even does miracles. The New Living leaves out his hands. Where did he get all the wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Same thing in Acts 5.2. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Diaton keron, ton apostolon. Keron is hands. It's literally there. But the NIV leaves the hands out. The apostles performed many miraculous signs. Where did their hands go? Left them out. Not main idea. And the New Living. The apostles were performing many. Now, I use these verses in class when I talk about personal ministry prayer and ministry prayer patterns in the New Testament, where, excuse me, Andrew, laying on hands was the pattern Jesus used often and the apostles used often when ministering to someone for healing, but you can't teach it from these verses in the NIV or the New Living. The words are important. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The Greek word pneuma is there. New century and message, he was very troubled. He became visibly upset. Spirit is gone. You can't teach about, what, about Jesus having a human spirit that was troubled from that verse, which um, overcomes an ancient heresy. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Psuche and pneuma, soul and spirit, are there. Important for understanding the words soul and spirit and how they're used in the New Testament. But the NLT, how I praise my Lord, how I rejoice, soul is gone. And new century gets soul in there, um, but uh, heart for spirit, it's, it, it's not consistent. ESV, whoever spares the rod, shave it, 
a stick or a piece of wood that you use for discipline, hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. I had that verse come to me. Now, look, my sons are 40, 38, and 34. But when they were 10, 8, and 4, this verse was really important. (laughs) Uh, And with tears in my eyes, I've had that verse in my mind in spanking my sons. Because it talks about using the rod. We use a wooden spoon, but it, was, it worked. But the new living just gets rid of it. If you, discipline your, if you refuse to discipline your children, well, shave it means rod, piece of wood. It just disappeared. Because they got the main idea of discipline, but they didn't get the details. ESV, we walk by faith, not by sight. And we talk about walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Walk means living a pattern of life. Conduct ourselves according to a pattern of life. And this Greek word peripateo, which means walk, it also means conduct your life in a certain way. NIV thought it was too hard for people to understand that walk was a metaphor for living. And so they put, we live by faith, not by sight. New living, we live by believing, not by seeing. But you lose the connection with the idea of the life as a journey toward our destination, walking, and you lose the connection with other verses, such as Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. So you lose things, you lose details. You don't put attention on the very words. Same in NIV in Galatians 5. Instead of walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. We kept walk wherever we could, Uh, in the New Testament where uh, it would work in these verses. They're small details, but they make a difference. I'm trying to hurry, so we keep on schedule here. (laughs) And so I don't completely fall asleep. (laughs) Small losses of meaning multiplied by thousands of verses add up to a huge loss of meaning for the whole Bible. I'm going to skip over this. The theory of dynamic equivalence was promoted first by Eugene Nida. Uh, He had a marvelous influence on translation into obscure and exotic languages around the world and helped Wycliffe translators massively. But I think he was mistaken on the way in which he wanted to simplify translations too much and make them too immediately understandable and leave out some of the details. I'm going to skip over that. Conclusion to this section, a belief that the very words of Scripture are the very words of God leads me to encourage and and support essentially literal translations over dynamic equivalence translations. And I define... (laughs) This is too long. (laughs) This is in a book called Translating Truth, published by Crossway. So I'm I'm using that as a basis for this lecture. So you can look up... Essentially literal, and I think it's on my website, waynegrudem.com. Basically, it's what I've been saying. It translates every word within the original, the meaning of every word in the original language, understood correctly in its context into its nearest English equivalent, sometimes word for word, but the point, important point is translating the meaning of every word somehow to the extent that that can be done in English. Now, Peter, to take F in Genesis 1.1, the direct object marker, it's done by cases in English and by, by, worse, by word placement. And so you don't translate the word eth as Aquila did, but uh, you translate it 
You translate the force of it by how you do the English, of course. Dynamic equivalent translates the thoughts or ideas into similar thoughts or ideas in English and attempts to have the same impact on modern readers. A recent trend... Now, this is, that was part one of the talk. Short part two here, because I'm trying to finish it on time. A recent trend in some, in some Bible translations, and a troubling trend, is to become gender-neutral or gender-inclusive. It started with the New Revised Standard Version in 1989, then went to then it was imitated by the TNIV in 2005, the New Living Translation to a large extent in 1996, and now the NIV 2000, which is the only NIV available because the 1984 one has been discontinued by Zondervan. I want to say first that some gender language change is good. It's good to replace man with person or anyone. Where the original words of the Bible just meant person, where there wasn't a masculine-specific meaning in the original, then of course don't have a masculine-specific meaning in English today. Don't make it more masculine-oriented than the original was. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, 1971 RSV. The ESV, of course, changed that in hundreds of places like this to if anyone would come after me. The Greek word is just tis, just anyone. It doesn't necessarily refer to a male human being as the word aner would, for instance. Recent gender-neutral Bibles take this too far. They remove thousands of examples of man, father, son, brother, he, him, and his, in cases where the original Hebrew or Greek meant a male human being. And that's the decisive question. And they replace man with person, father with parent, son with child, brother with friend, and he, him, and his with they, them, and their which makes ambiguous whether it's singular or plural in cases where it referred to a male human being. So the t- I'm first going to start out with the 2005 Today's New International Version, TNIV, and um, many of these that I'm going to mention, they corrected because some of us who were opposing it used these in presentations again and again, and they said, whoops, and so they changed some of the ones we were using in presentation, but I'll get to the 2011 one in just a minute. This one baffled me. Deuteronomy 21.15, if a man has two wives, they change it to, if someone has two wives. <laughs> Psalm 34.20, a troubling one, he protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken, fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion in John 19.36. Changed to 34.20 of Psalms in the TNIV, he protects all their bones, not one of them would be broken, because they didn't like the masculine-oriented word they said, his, so they changed it to their. Uh, but you lose the evidence of the fulfillment in Jesus' life and, and, and crucifixion specifically. Revelation 22.18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. A severe warning. Revelation 22.18, they didn't like the word him. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone of you adds anything to them, God will add to you the plagues described in this scroll. Now I ask, is you here singular or plural? It has to be plural. Anyone of you, of all of you listening to this, anyone of you, God will add to you. It looks like if any one person of the group adds to the words, God will add to you, all, all of you plural, 
the plagues. So instead of the plagues coming to one person, it comes to the group. At least it's troubling. It's not specific. It's, it's generalized. Then in 2011, the TNIV was replaced by the NIV 2011. The 3,686 inaccuracies. <laughs> That's why you have graduate students to count. Um, in fact, Brian Reed, when he was a student at Phoenix Seminary, uh, is now ministering in this area um, at Arizona Christian University, did a lot of work counting the Old Testament examples specifically. And other students at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where John Mead graduated. From details at cbmw.org. But they reduced the 3,686 inaccuracies to 2,766 inaccuracies. That's an improvement. <laughs> but the problems still are there. So here's one. Luke 17.3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. 1984, the NIV had it right. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. The Greek is simple. There's no mystery about it. Brother, singular, him. If he repents, forgive him. NIV 2011 starts doing gymnastics with the verse. If your brother or sister, but it doesn't, Greek can say or sister. It could say Adelphi or sister, but it didn't say that. Jesus didn't say brother or sister, but they add or sister. It's not there in the text. Sins against you, rebuke them. Is it singular or plural? You're not sure. And if they repent, forgive them. But these are all singulars in Greek. I meant to say on this one, I forgot to say this, they changed the very words of the verse that says not to change the words of the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Not recommended. Okay. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Singular, masculine, singular in Greek. Him, him, him. Wow, what a problem. What are we going to do with all these hymns? Well, the NIV 2011. If anyone, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now, if, does it refer to the fellowship between a fa- the Father and the Son, we will come to him. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Does it refer to fellowship between you and God personally, individually? Or is it a church supper? That is, a whole group. We will, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Well, Father will love them, all the people who obey this. And we will come to them and make our home with them. The emphasis on individual personal relationship with, between God and you is lost. Or at least it's blunted, it's minimized. It's... Now, see, now you wonder. When you're reading along and, you're, and you come to one of these, you, does it really represent you in the Greek text or is it a gender-neutral substitute? And you come to this word they and them, and is it a substitute or is it really representing the Greek text? There's another them. Well, you don't know unless you look in your Greek or Hebrew text every verse. And then why are you reading an English Bible in the first place? But 
the words they, them, their, themselves, those occur 18,999 times in the NIV 2011. And you, your, yours, yourself, your, yourself, yourselves occurred 21,166 times. Total of 40,165 potentially gender-neutral substitute pronouns for he, him, and his. And the problem is, they're not all substitutes. They're not Only 2,000 of them are, but you don't know which ones they are. So how do you know which of those 40,000 words in the NIV are trustworthy and which ones are gender-neutral substitutes? You don't know. All of a sudden it destroys your confidence in 40,000 words in this English Bible. I think that's a very serious loss. Other losses. Saul took David, him, that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Hebrew Av means father. NIV 84 had it correct. NIV 2011 didn't like the idea of calling it his father's house, so they didn't let him return to his family. That's just, I think, inexcusable. But it takes away the gender specificity of father's house. Nahum 3.13 is a different kind of change. Behold, your troops are women, Hebrew word nashi means women, in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. I don't know if this verse is saying all the men are dead and the only soldiers left to defend the city are women, or if they're just kind of mocking and saying your soldiers are weaklings. Or they're like women, kind of trying to psych, psych them out. It's a judgment passage. The NIV 1984 had, had it right. Look at your troops, they're all women. In the ancient world, women weren't soldiers. The NIV 2011 didn't like that. Look at your troops, they're all weaklings. The most troublesome, most objectionable verse in the entire NIV 2011, to my mind, is 1 Timothy 2.12. It is the key text in the dispute over whether women can be pastors and elders in churches. In it, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. The Greek word authenteo means to exercise authority or to have authority. And more and more and more and more research on that verse just confirms it. Dr. Al Walters was at Phoenix Seminary recently with an amazingly um, erudite presentation on this. NIV 1984 had it right. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. The NIV 2011 changed it. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man she is to be quiet. To my mind, that gives away the whole controversy over women's ordination to be pastors and elders in churches. Because any woman who wants to come here, Josh, and replace you and be a pastor, she can just say, I'm not disobeying that verse. I didn't assume authority. The elders gave it to me. And that's what, that's what female pastors are doing, and those who wish to justify it. So I, uh, I, and Doug Moo, the chairman of the NIV Translation Committee, has been a friend of mine for 30 years or more, 35 now. But I said to him, 15 minutes after they announced this translation, I said, Doug, you gave away the whole store on this. Uh, you gave away the whole controversy on this verse. I think it's tragic. The uh, Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, in a 19, uh, 2011 resolution said the, the NIV is an inaccurate translation and said, we cannot commend the 2011 NIV to Southern Baptists or the larger Christian community. 
Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, Commission on Theology and Church Relations, a a report in August 2012, said, in our judgment, this, the foregoing analysis, makes it inappropriate for the NIV 2011 to be used as a lectionary Bible or as a Bible to be generally recommended to the laity of our church. And they point especially to the substitution of plural nouns and pronouns for masculine singular nouns and pronouns, a serious theological weakness. And removing the phrase son of man many times, it's very troubling to them. The Missouri Synod is the Lutheran group that's most similar to Gospel Coalition and Trinity Bible Church in its view of Scripture, a very conservative group. So this is an argument for essentially literal translations. Josh, what time am I supposed to end? About three minutes or right now? Okay, let me see if I can finish up. So, so I would recommend any of these five versions... King James, New King James, ESV, New American Standard, or Holman Christian Standard, as reliable, trustworthy Bibles. Um, and uh, I, I still see that the NIV as the Word of God, although has mistakes in a number of places, and not as precise and detailed as it could be. Still, God is using it, and I don't want to say it's... I don't want to be entirely negative about it. God uses translations of Scripture to bring people to himself, and I'm thankful for that. Of these translations, the King James and New King James um, still still have a significant share of the Bible market. The the King James has Shakespearean language. Shakespeare just finished his last plays in about 1611. The King James Version was finished in 1611. Um, If you've gone to high school and read Shakespeare, you know you can read Shakespeare, but it's work. And so that's the kind of difficulty with the King James Version. It was a very good translation for its day. The New King James has updated the language, but it's based on less reliable Greek manuscripts. It's based on a man named Erasmus, who in 1516 and then 1522 published a Greek New Testament. He had six Greek manuscripts to work with. They're from the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. And he did the best he could with six manuscripts. And the the manuscript he published in 1522 was what the King James Version translators used. Since 1522, that's almost 500 years, archaeologists, researchers, people like Dirk Junkin here in the back row, have discovered literally more than 5,000 older, better manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. But the New King James translators in 1981 still used these manuscripts that Erasmus depended on. Um, Or the Byzantine text tradition, which was in the history of the church, copied again and again, but not the oldest and best manuscripts. So the New King James is never going to win the loyalty of the vast majority of seminary-trained pastors and Bible teachers in the world because they know about the history of the text and it's not based on as good Greek manuscripts. It means 800 to 1,000 little details are not quite as accurate as they could be. There are a lot of things that aren't really making any difference, like saying the Lord Jesus Christ instead of the Lord. It just kind of gives more words that weren't there, but it doesn't change the meaning. But still, it's not as accurate. The New King James and King James have less, good, less helpful Hebrew and Greek, or sorry, less reliable Greek manuscripts. 
the uh, New American Standard is good as a translation. The English is not as easy to use as possible. In, in promoting and deciding to translate the ESV, we were trying to get for, we're aiming for the accuracy of the New American Standard along with readability that was as readable as the NIV. And so we're trying to get the best of both of those worlds. And Holman Christian Standard is also useful, a little more free, but quite reliable. So that's where we are. Um, as of December last month, Bible sales in the U.S. are, based on unit sales, look like this. The NIV is still first, but it's dropped from 50% of the Bible market to between 25 and 30% of the Bible market in the last 10 years or so with all this controversy. Number two is an anomaly. It's a, t- it's a strange, unusual translation. It's a junior high, transla- junior high level readability called The Voice, put out by Thomas Nelson. It's like The New Living or The Message or something like that. They had an extremely cheap promotion that led into the December sales, so it popped up all of a sudden number two on the list, but it, it'll just pop off of the list again, so it really doesn't count. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not going to gain serious traction. It's, it's, anyway, I won't say much more about it. Uh, King James, basically, if we leave out the voice from this monthly list, King James is number two. English Standard Version was then number three. And New King James number four and New Living number five. Those three, four, and five are up on that list, four, five, and six. They, the Bible translations are bouncing back and forth for second, third, and fourth place month by month. But I just got a note from the vice president in charge of Bible translation and say, or Bible sales for Crossway this morning, I asked him, what, what does he see as trends? He said, the ESV is now distributing 36 million print copies per year, and we are quite confident that it's the largest distribution of any English translation now. And that's since 2001. In the 13 years, it's just um, increased, and we're thankful for that. Last Sunday, I was in New Delhi, India, speaking in a church. I walk in the church. There, they're giving away ESVs. The previous Sunday I was in Bangalore, India. I walk in the church, evangelical church. There they're using ESV as their main Bible. I don't know if you know this, but with over a billion people in English, we visited the parliament in India. They use English as their major language for debate and parliamentary discussion because it's the language that is understood by all the people and language groups in India. So um, I'm thankful for that. The Gideons are now using the ESV as their main or their only modern language translation. They still give out some King James and then the ESV as a modern translation. They gave away 23 million copies of the ESV last year. So we're thankful, we're encouraged by the trend. Um, All these Bibles will give you um, the Word of God for the most part, but uh, if you want a reliable one, um, I'd recommend the ESV. (laughs) Thank you very much.